millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This is a Manhattan-bound B-Express train. The next stop is Grand Street. Mind the gap. Hello, I'm John Elledge and this is Skyline's The Cinematic Podcast. I am back from my holidays. I had a very blissful week doing absolutely nothing. Why is that? It was very blissful for about four days and then it turns out doing absolutely nothing starts to drive me very slowly crazy. So so I, I, I am pathetically actually quite glad to be back afterwards. But I had a very nice break and I went to the rather fine city of Valencia where they have uh, they have trams, they have a metro... They have, they have what used to be a river that's now a park, which is, I mean, that's, that's kind of a fine addition to any city, I think. So, but we're not, we're not gonna, we're not gonna talk about that today. We are going to go into the history of a rather different city. In fact, um, okay, it's gonna be London again. Sorry. But to, to do that, I am joined by the freelance journalist and, uh, what do they want to describe you as? Genealogist nerd? Well, no. you describe me as a noted primogenitor. Primogenitor nerd, yeah. yes. So, Ned Donovan, how are you, Ned? <laughs> I'm very well, thank you. And have you, have you been to Valencia at all? I've, I've never been to Spain. Let That's alone terrible. Valencia. How have you avoided? Spain has like the best cities. I don't think I've ever been to a Spanish city that I haven't fallen in love with a little bit. I mean, I've barely been to France and I sort of spent about five minutes in Portugal changing planes. So I've, I've, I've stayed well clearer for the Iberian Peninsula. So wow okay so, so you have all these these wonderful places to to discuss and they're so convenient as well where do you where do you go instead uh i go a lot to the u.s i go about as far as i can really away from away from britain and, and uh, our neighbors india a lot okay well i mean i suppose given the current state of british politics that's not an entirely irrational thing to do <laughs> But anyway, you, you, you wanted to come and talk to us about uh, the legacy of the Victorians in, in terms of the sort of physical footprint of, of, of London. Mm, I suppose physical footprint and also the enduring legacy. I often, I often think about how both furious and incredibly proud the Victorians would be that we haven't developed a lot of our infrastructure since then, but yet the infrastructure they built still, still allows us to live in London pretty, pretty well. So London is still dependent on a number of, of bits of fairly ancient infrastructure at this point, of which the probably the most prominent is the tube, but the, the early bits of the tube is built, opened in 1863, which is, is kind of crazy. The US Civil War is going on. Abraham Lincoln <laughs> is still walking the earth and they are building the first bit of the London Underground Network. <laughs> But but probably more important than, than than the railways is actually the sewers, wouldn't you? Is that is that a fair assessment? Yeah. So you had London in sort of late eighteen fifties, early eighteen sixties, covered in typhoid and cholera and other lovely waterborne diseases that we barely hear of anymore. And it was even called the Big Stink because the River Thames had basically become an open sewer. 
There's no fish. There's nothing alive in there. It's just effluence. And the Victorians sort of worked out, we should probably do something about this because people keep dying. <laughs> so, but were they, did they... I mean, my understanding is that it was kind of a while before they were clear on what it was that was causing all mm. these diseases. They didn't realise they were waterborne for quite a while, did they? It's sort of... It's it's like a sort of a sort of the plague, you know. There's a disease going rampant, but the origin of it is still sort of rather mm. vague. But obviously, as Victorian science progressed at an astonishing rate, it sort of became obvious that something was being contaminated. And then, the moment the sewer was completed, waterborne diseases almost totally disappeared. Okay, so this is all happening in the late 1850s, is that about right? Yeah, sort of late. It took about ten years to complete, and it got completed in 1868. Uh, so, cost cost about, I think then around four million pounds, which in today's money is probably near half a billion, five hundred million or so. So that's quite a big deal, and also it was not always clear that politicians of the age were were mad keen on spending money on on public works. How did the people who sort of were promoting this idea persuade a parliament that was not really into government intervention to to, to back it? I'm not convinced entirely by that. I think it was definitely an age of private companies, but private companies more often than not bailed out by the government. And also a great sense of, of civic pride that existed in the Victorian era. You know, you have to look at the, the sewer system that was created to just actually see, bizarrely, how pretty it is. You go to the pumping stations all around London. Um, it was that sort of Benthamites sort of in, in government who also happened to like a bit of administration. And uh, sort of remaining feudal, sort of noblesse oblige to the people. Benthamites meaning Jeremy Bentham. Jeremy Bentham, sort of following, yeah. Utilitarianism, exactly. right? the greatest good for the greatest yeah. number. Yeah. And you have to remember that four and a half million pounds to create a sewer system that's probably around, like I said, around half a billion today. You can imagine now creating a sewer system for London. I, mean, I can't imagine. I don't know how much the new one is costing, this new development. But imagine it's a hell of a lot more than that. But you then have to remember that the government revenue then was only around £75 million a year, which is now around £8 billion. Government revenue, as we know now, is, is, is nothing like it was before. So £4.5 million out of £70 million to spend on, on sewer. But it was, it was purely a... Uh, the war's actually a... a a sort of paternalistic approach to it, and, and it, w- it did stop people dying. But the, the New London Super Sewer, by the way, is, is four billion. I there you go. It. So yeah, it's, <laughs> it's kind of of an order of magnitude. But this is so. I mean, I, I guess what I'm wondering with the politicians is: did they were they thinking this is a public health matter, or was it like I've always had half an idea that it's because the that that lovely open sewer of the River Thames literally flow past Parliament. So they were kind of. It was quite clear that there were there were downsides to it, without getting into the fact that people were dying of cholera. Well, of course, there's a bias. Uh, you know, they probably spent a lot more on it and made it a lot bigger than they could have done elsewhere in England at the time, because of its location and the fact that MPs were having to then still cross the Thames, on the idea of people actually crossing the Thames by boat, still not totally dead in the Victorian era, mm. mostly gone but not dead. Um, but I, I think there was definitely an attitude that, that the Victorians believed that they had the opportunity to solve uh, problems that had, that had caused London and I suppose the UK in general problems for centuries. The Thames has always been a relatively open sewer. It just sort of reached during the Industrial Revolution quite a, you know, astonishing 
Mm. Uh, peak. I, mean, I guess one of the greatest examples is that they could have built a sewer that kept them going and, and solved the big stink, the great stink. But they didn't. They, they, they built one so much more impressive. You know, I was, I was, I was just trying to find what, um, what Basil gets said. And he, he basically calculated how much sewage each person in London produced <laughs> and he and i would be interested in in the nature of his research there. and so he sort of he sort of worked out if he was to give everyone an allowance of sewage then uh the sewer would be able to cope for say 100 years so 1950 1960 but he gave them the greatest allowance possible and then you know confronted with this number basil gets said well we're only going to do this once, and there's always the unforeseen. And with that, he doubled the diameter once more. Sort of great, sort of Nostradamus-esque uh, prophecy, because his sewer lasted until around the 1950s, and then we started building upwards. And as London got of higher density, and tower blocks emerged, there is no way an original diameter of the ideal sewer would have would have saved would have served London, and it would have blocked up in the 1950s, 1960s when we were pretty i i i hesitate to break in here but inner london became less dense after the war but in terms of how we built but ta- but tower i mean yes tower. i suppose on individual yeah. sites you will have yes. more sewage coming down from particular points so you had you had but, the sewer connected to fundamentally what were parish councils mm. so the parish council would say we have this number of buildings we want to connect it to the sewage network we have this diameter of pipe and Basilgood often said, "No, no, no. Six inches is is not is not enough." And he would he would insist that it would be larger. And yes, you're right. In terms of density across London, got less. But in terms of the way we built, the Victorian sewer under the proposed plans would not have would not have survived. Mm. It is kind of crazy that, like, I mean, the, the, I think I'm also only saying that the, the Basilgood sewer project is the origin of the Metropolitan Board of Works. Yes. Which was later replaced by the London County Council, which was later replaced by the GLC, which was later replaced yeah. by the GLA. You know, this is the origin of London-wide government. Before then, there wasn't anything. No. In, in the 1850s, I think London was, if it wasn't the biggest city in the world then, it had been fairly recently. And there was no such thing as, as a London-wide city municipal authority. There was nobody planning for this stuff. It was, as you say, just kind of individual parish councils, which is lunacy. Well, so you look at the Metropolitan Board of Works, and it's not alone. It's one of those, the Victorians were the first to formalise so many things like that, whether it's the Metropolitan Board of Works, whether it was um, commissions on, on lunacy, uh, commissions on uh, museums, galleries, all these sort of great sort of, it's, it all comes back to civic duty, these sort of either newly rich middle class or aristocrats who are bound by this Victoriana sort of, of, of doing something for society. And you look at the Metropolitan Board of Works, and a lot of them are not necessarily engineers or, or experts or scientists. They often are just some of the richest and, and most powerful people in London at the time. And when you have those people behind projects, uh, you get some really extraordinary results. I mean, look at Albertopolis in South Kensington. You know, originally intended to sort of be a, a, you know, a few nice buildings. You know, they raised so much money that they built an incredible little area of London. I mean, Albertopolis is thankfully not a name that has passed into general usage. <laughs> <laughs> but what, what, like, tell us what's what, what's there. Well, it, it's it's just that it, you have to remember, obviously, how 
relatively barren West London was for a long, <laughs> for a long period of time. So I mean, basically countryside. Is, <laughs> sort of basically countryside. Um, sort of the village of Chelsea. And the, mm. See, by Victorian times, it had got more, more crowded. But you look at sort of the, the natural, the old natural history museum or the Victorian Albert Museum or even the Albert Memorial, all these sort of great, uh, structures that we still utilize today. Even the, even the great exhibition. I, I can't remember what year it was. But 1851. Eight, there you go, 1851. Yeah. The, if I remember correctly, the Committee for the Great Exhibition still exists today. It, and it still, it still grants money. It raised so much money then that it put, obviously, a lot in savings and interest and things like that. And I'm pretty sure it, it's either that one or the one for Albertopolis that still makes grants today. Who, who is it making grants to? Uh, community groups, charity groups. Um, it has some amazing ex officio members. Like I think the Archbishop of Canterbury is an ex officio member or mm. sort of these great sort of, there was, a, there was an expectation that if you were a Victorian politician, you did participate in like a civic board or a group or a committee or something like that. That's how all those great decisions were made. They're all committees of, of very powerful people. You know, it wasn't, say, like, take the Garden Bridge now, for example. You wouldn't <laughs> sort of loathed, loathed by all. But if that was a, if you transplanted that, say, to the Victorian area, it wouldn't just be celebrities. It would be um, sort of some great peer would be involved or the Lord Chancellor. And it probably would end up have gone through. <laughs> mm. I suppose it's kind of, this This is the sort of bit of, of civil society where stuff that we would now consider to be the role of government happened. Mm. Like it's it's kind of it, the way politics changes. All this stuff kind of gets sucked into being the job of the state, and then in the last sort of forty years or so, like there has been not necessarily in the infrastructure stuff, but in a lot of other bits of kind of you know, the social infrastructure rather than physical infrastructure. Mm. The, the idea from 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 the right has been well, actually, the government needs to get out of this stuff and leave that to the market, and and you know charitable groups and so on and. They've kind of not filled that space in the way that... But I just remember um, a programme about the legacy of, of Margaret Thatcher on Radio 4 in which Michael Portillo basically said that Thatcher's argument was if, you just, if the state gets out, then then so the noblesse oblige will kind of fill the gap. And there's a slight pause and then the presenter says, do, do you think that worked? And he's like, no, no, that didn't work at all. It's like, it doesn't feel like... It feels like the state's kind of pulled back, but mm. nothing has replaced it in a lot of cases. I mean, a really good example is public subscription. Mm. Uh, most sort of great Victorian statues, memorials, and a lot of public buildings were all paid for by public subscription. So take Trafalgar Square. I'm, I'm pretty sure the development of Trafalgar Square with Nelson's Column and the four statues was all paid for by public subscription. So random members of the public donating, say, a shilling or a pound or very rich ones donating thousands of pounds, turning it into um, taking what would be a government project today and um, paying for the entire thing. They didn't get anything out of it. They didn't get dividends. They didn't get shares. They they genuinely felt there was there was a social dividend that that by contributing to say building uh, a new hospital or building a statue that they were doing something for society. I mean Edward the Seventh, Ed, Edward the Seventh, who founded what is now the King's Fund, built more hospitals, I think, than than anyone has done since, because purely by strong arming incredibly rich people into donating towards hospitals. And that is why so many great hospitals in this country, across the country, not just London, were all the works of Edward VII as Prince of Wales and later 
the king. I didn't realise that. Yeah. I used to I used to write about the health service, and I, the, the King's Fund today is mostly sort of health health think tank. Yeah, I didn't realise that it was literally a sort of fund for building hospitals. Yeah, it was a fund for building hospitals, training nurses, um, all because again, <laughs> the Victorian ideal that that um, that people should donate and and it should be normal. They they wouldn't have a wing named after them. You know, it's not like now where you sort of have the Zuckerberg Hospital in San Francisco mm. or, or things like that. You just did it because society needed a new hospital and it was your position in a, the final sort of days of any sort of remaining feudal attitude that you had to do your bit. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Why do you think this changes? In national sort of level, it changes, obviously, with the Great War and then the Second War in terms of societal change and Obviously, the earlier change was in Victorian movement of people, you know, from countryside feudal settings with squires still and aristocrats. And then obviously, as that continues to disintegrate until the mid 20th century, that progresses and progresses and progresses. Politically, it's Thatcher. You know, the Conservative Party was a party of, uh, Howard Macmillan used to say, and I've said it before, of, of, of paternal socialism. And that disappears with Thatcher. And no one has quite been brave enough to suggest that the Conservative Party could do that today. Um, May tried in her first speech. She sort of stood in there, she stood outside Downing Street and said, you know, we will, the government will take its role in, in making life better for people, you know, and so on and so on. And has actually done nothing mm-hmm. <laughs> towards that aim. I mean, I mean, I, I have a number of issues about Theresa May, which which regular readers will no doubt be aware of. But I, I kind of think that that whole sort of um, red Tory thing, I think it was pretty like, it was the equivalent of blue Labour on the other side. I think part of the problem with sort of making it actually happen, apart from, you know, never mind the fact that a lot of her party are not mad about it, it doesn't really fit with austerity. 
it's quite difficult to kind of say, no, we should be sort of investing in these projects to mm. get X, Y, and Z happening if you if you don't have the money to invest. So short of like completely changing the economic strategy that the, that the government has been pursuing for the last eight years, it's really difficult to see how you do that. Well, what a what a shame if that was to be uh, <laughs> austerity was to be got rid of. What a what a, what a I mean, I, I, I think getting rid of austerity is a bloody great yeah, idea. I'm just saying the Conservative Party don't. You, there's no um, you you look at sort of the opinions on austerity of sort of conservatives when it was tried sort of after the Great Depression and sort of light austerity, and you sort of get this real attitude among politicians that it was. Um, parvenu sort of bankers who had come into politics or uh, again Macmillan describes them as sort of brewers and uh, insurance agents who had taken over the Conservative Party um, very very sort of quite snobbish and classist but at the same time he it's sort of you remember that it used to be run by a party who would not discuss money like it was <laughs> it was impolite to discuss money mm. um, and so spending spending was no problem and the austerity was seen as was as like quite callous which is what it is and I, I i'm sure you're right i don't see the conservative party going back to that but at the same time they could reap the dividends i mean look at what mcmillan did housing wise what neville chamberlain did housing wise well yeah let's let's talk about housing because i i quite recently uh reviewed a book called municipal dreams by john bowton which is a sort of history of council housing fascinating book actually but something i didn't appreciate was the earliest council estates were built for not dissimilar reasons to the earliest sewers, which is that there was the... Are you aware of the miasma theory of disease transmission? Mm, which is based, yeah. It's bad smells is where disease comes from. Like, they knew there was kind of something physical. <laughs> they thought the, sm- the, the smell of, of, of crap was the thing that yeah. was... Wrong. But it was because, like, the slums smelt so bad and were quite close to, like, rich people's houses. They thought, well that people are sick in there, we're going to get sick too. We need to give them better housing mm. with, with with connections to actual sewage systems and so on. Otherwise, our children are going to die of, of cholera or something. So that's that's one of the motivations in the earliest council states because before then, like, it was seen as... There was a concern that if the government started building housing for people, they would become dependent on the government and this would be in some way bad for them. There is a school of thought that the slum clearances were a terrible decision. Is there? Bizarrely. Bizarrely, there actually is among some conservatives that not purely because destroying the slums, in the views of these people, destroyed communities. Take London, for instance. You had, through the Victorian era, this sort of great, again, philanthropy where churches started popping up around slums, a lot of churches. Um, And the slums were cleared. And the final ones were cleared, I think, in 1959, something like that. Macmillan's manifesto promised the final slum clearances. So the slums were cleared and uh, communities destroyed. And the argument is that actually, if the slums had remained um, and income had grown, people would have moved naturally out of the slums. And the slums as dense housing were perfectly fine, just with less people in them. I'm not sure I subscribe to it, but there Mm. is genuinely a view that the destruction of 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 slums removed quite a key part of British society. I'm 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 not like I said I'm not a subscriber to it, but it but it is among some academics quite quite strong. It's an, interest, it's an interesting theory. I mean, I think it sounds like nonsense to me, but it's an interesting <laughs> theory. Um, but I mean, something else that that makes me think of from that book is that the earliest council housing was seen as aspirational. It was. Mm for what was patronising, you know, as the respectable working classes, but it was like people in regular 
employment, fairly steady incomes, like reasonably well-to-do, would move out to these sort of new cottage estates. It's a big change, though, because obviously in the past, the only people who got provided housing were the poor, like the absolute poorest, the, the almshouses mm. of churches. You still see, there's still some in London that you see are dotted around and there's a lot in the countryside. Yeah, because where, par- parishes yeah, were responsible for their... For, for, the, for the paupers in yeah. society. And they would look down upon, like living in an arms mm. house or living in a pauper's house was, was very much a, a sort of denigration of yourself. You, you'd given up your responsibility. Well, this is kind of where we... We're sort of ended up with social housing now. Mm. It's kind of seen as like, you know, if you're, if you're there, it's because you can't afford to be somewhere else. But one of the things that fascinated me about Bowton's book is that's not true at the beginning of its history. Of it was not. originally, it was it was somewhere that people wanted to be because it kind of, it had a certain class implication. Mm. And also oddly, like council housing was seen as, as a trickle down policy. The idea was that if you build... Counts if you build sort of new cottage estates for for the kind of richest working class people, then everybody else gets to move up a rung, because like okay, people move from the worst slums to the slightly better slums, you know, basically, which is kind of it's just like such a sort of totally different way of thinking about municipal housing policy than the one we've ended up with now, where it's absolutely seen as kind of you know the bottom rung of the ladder. Mm. Uh, there's also an argument that the health in slums wasn't actually as bad as we think of it today. So you'd be actually surprised how healthy mid-Victorians and late-Victorians were. Life expectancy of under fives was was pretty similar to as it is now. It's sometimes even better. Mm. There's, a great, there's a great study. I think it's uh, how the Victorians ate, worked and died. And it sort of it analysed the lives of Victorians. And it revealed that life expectancy at age five was good, as good or better than today. And the incidence of degenerative diseases was 10% what we have now. Now, obviously, that, that changes later in the Victorian era. But I think, I think there's, there's, there's definitely a view that has changed on social housing. That it, when it went from being a matter of, again, I think civic pride, you know, building social housing and moving social housing, there was no, there was no cachet of, of unsuitability to it. You were just moving into a, mm. a new house that the government had built because the government builds houses. Mm-hmm. And that's why you sort of a great example is, um, you know, Neville Chamberlain, who we remember now as being, you know, an appeaser and a died quite sad, tragically. And, but he built an astonishing amount of houses, you know, so, so much so that there was a song released by, um, a review band called God, God bless you, Mr. Chamberlain, thanking him for all his houses. Was he, was he housing minister? I didn't realize that. No, but I think it was when he was prime minister. Ah. I think it was an, an initiative of when he was prime minister. I might be wrong. Um, but it, it was there was there was no there was no concern over moving mm. into one of these houses. I mean, the problem was that they just stopped doing that. So I, I hate to keep referring to Harold McMillan, but made housing minister by Churchill after the second his second election in the fifties. He said to he the, the government then had said that the utmost priority besides that of national defence. Is provision of housing. So There's a line in the 1951 Tory manifesto that's like, you know, housing is the first of the social services. Mm. But this was, I mean, like, this is what people always point back to as a point where a Tory government was building 300, 350,000 houses yeah. a year, the vast majority of which were council houses. Yeah. And it's kind of now sort of looked back on in this kind of, like, dewy-eyed fashion by, by people like me who want to build more houses. But... It is also worth remembering, like, we had just lost quite a lot of houses to the Luftwaffe in, in a fairly short period of time. 
So, like, there was a lot of slum clearance. There were a lot of ruins out there. So not only did we have an, an incredibly high demand for new housing, like, when my... Divert into a personal story, but, like, <laughs> when my when my dad was born, he was the, he was the second child. His, his older brother was six years old. And their parents were, were living with these two boys in a single room in a house in East Ham. And they were, you know, they were not poor. They were not rich. But, like, they were not they were not at the bottom of the heap. It's just, like there was such a housing shortage because so many houses had just been wiped out. But it's quite difficult to replicate that now. I think people often sort of look at the raw figures and think, well, we did it before. Why can't we do it now? And one of the big reasons is we literally don't have the spare land to put it on without sort of redefining the boundaries of our cities. Like we'd have to start knocking stuff down. And, you know, that was sort of easier in 1951 mm. because we got a head start on that, thanks to the German Air Force. <laughs> the, the funny thing is, though, that... That 350,000 houses built in 1950, 1954, 1955, I forget. The, it's the peak was in the yeah. 50s, yeah. When Macmillan was housing minister, they were not intended to be permanent houses. I mean, you look, they're not fantastic quality. They still, still, they would have been, they, the theory was that that would be done so regularly that you would be replacing housing stock mm. and building new housing stock. But as we know, that, that stops and that, that ceases. And despite cries of, of libertarians and sorry, neoliberals now on uh, on Twitter that um, it's because of regulation and that the Thatcher stopped doing it and handed it over to the private sector. Um, when Thatcher did reduce regulation, um, private sector house building barely changed. In fact, it was at a lower point than mm. under than than post war. <laughs> yeah. No. Again, I think it's the land thing is a huge factor there. Yeah. Is but also just like private. Like there was a ridiculous point last year where the Theresa May was sort of telling off the heads of private house building companies for awarding themselves massive bonuses at the time of housing crisis. And so you've really misunderstood their incentives here. Like they did, they, they, their job is not to be answerable to the public. Yeah. They, they, you know, their job is to be answerable to their shareholders. <laughs> and on that basis, they're doing a fantastic job. But, there is going. I mean, I said this in a, in a piece for the Spectator, but there is going to be a point. But maybe the next election, or if I'm really wrong, the one after, where there is a huge crisis coming between those who hold assets and those who don't. And the idea that if they don't want to live in either their parents' house or they don't want to rent a house for the rest of their lives, there is going to be a, a great confrontation over this. And whatever government is in power is going to have to handle it. It's going to be so much more complicated than anyone I think can predict. Mm-hmm. Well, there's there's a crisis to look forward to once we've dealt with uh, once we've dealt with the present one. <laughs> I just want to wrap up. I kind of just want to sort of circle back to the beginning of our conversation and ask, what do you think the Victorians would make of the fact we're still using so much of their infrastructure? I think it would piss them off, but at the same time, they would be oh we were as good as we thought we were. <laughs> we we can actually build prisons and sewers and railways and buildings and and bridges that can last until um the second millennia um sorry third third millennia i suppose but they would also be incredibly annoyed at us you know you took over our legacy and you have failed to build anything Mm. as near as impressive and you don't have any of the same attitude to what we do i suppose it's like doing any job and sort of 
seeing your successor like ruin everything you built and it's on one level it's like it's quite so the smug makers and think like oh yes i was really 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 i'm clearly incredibly good at that on the other level it's like you just trashed my legacy but also yeah. that would we, we haven't even got rid of what they built though mm. that would make that would make sense we but we still i mean i keep coming back to prisons but the state of prisons in this country is astonishingly bad the, the pure reason being that we are still relying on infrastructure made during the late 19th century. Prisons, most London prisons are, are Victorian inventions and they don't, they haven't been updated. The idea that we just stopped building major prisons in 90, at the death of Victoria before the Great War is inconceivable. Mm. And, and it means that as a result, prisoners in this country are, are treated at the same level as they were then. Well, on that cheery note, thank, Ned, thank you very much for joining us. I'm very happy to. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.